The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today, we are joined by John Lee. John Lee is the Regional Manager for Western Canada at the Transportation Safety Board, located in Edmonton, Alberta. He has worked for the board since 1999 as an aircraft accident investigator and has been the manager at the Edmonton office since 2004. He has been involved in over 50 investigations as investigator in charge or second in command, where the board has issued a report with findings as to cause and contributing factors. John has had the fortunate opportunity to support the TSB mandate by participating in foreign investigations that involve Canadian aerospace products and has worked with the NTSB of the US, ASC of Taiwan, AAIRB of Korea, AAIB of Singapore, AAIB of Mongolia, the BFU of Switzerland, and AAIB of Finland. Prior to accident investigation, John gained industry experience as a pilot in various types of operations, from regional airlines to transcontinental cargo to medevac and flight instruction. He has flown over 35 types of aircraft and has accumulated 6,500 flight hours. He maintains a valid and current ATPL. I could not be more excited to have him joining me today. Welcome, John. Hi, Laura. How's it going? It's going great. How are Good. you today? Quite well, thank you. Right on. All that to say, how did you get your start in aviation? It's always a fun question. Um, I guess as a, as a child, Going back a long time, my first uh, love affair with modes of transportation, of course, were trains, train sets. <laughs> but uh, my older brother soon beat that out of me. So by the time I was in about grade two or three, the whole aviation thing was, was, was sparking up. And that was mostly because my brother, Tim, was, was big into to the Air Force at that time. And we used to love writing letters to the Royal Canadian Air Force back in the early 70s. And they'd send these promotional packages back with posters and letters, and you could put pictures of F-104s and F-5s on the wall. And we we're all super gung-ho about that. We're gonna be Air Force pilots, you know, fly F-5s and, and Lord knows what. And then in grade three, I got glasses. And it was just like, and I knew already the Air Force requirements for for pilots and you you had to have 2020 vision or better so right then it the whole idea of being a pilot kind of just totally disappeared so that went in the back shelf for many years fast forward got into music quite a bit in school and then as I went into post-secondary I was going to a music college uh, down in the United States and was pursuing music uh, more so studio engineering producing that sort of thing realized what a gong show of an industry that is. Uh, when I got back to Canada, yeah, there's like eight jobs in Canada for that. <laughs> if you want to, uh, you know, either join a recording studio or even of the any of the TV radio stuff, it was super hard. And of course, going to the school in the States, I had acquired some debt and uh, just started working, selling cameras at London Drugs. It's, uh, you know, uh, uh, a chain out here in Western Canada making some money, trying to keep your head above water and went, went to go visit a friend out in the lower mainland of BC. And he was uh, flying um, for a flying school out of Boundary Bay. And I was visiting him 
And he said, hey, come, come with me. I'm doing a multi-IFR instruction flight tonight. We're taking up the travel air, the Beach 95, and you can ride in the back. Oh, okay. So, uh, and Craig had been a longtime family friend, actually. He's about 12 years older than me. But um, anyway, we do the flight. We come back and he says, hey, so what'd you think? I said, yeah, that's, that's a lot of fun. That's really cool. He says, so why aren't, because, you know, he knew I was kind of in between things and the whole music thing wasn't working out. And uh, he says, so why don't you get into flying? I said, well, I got glasses. He says, oh, he says on the commercial side, you can be practically blind and get a category one medical. So I went, really? So that was like in January of 88. I get back to Edmonton after visiting and I immediately get a cat one medical. And then a pass. And then it was off to the Edmonton Flying Club. And by April, that spring, I soloed and then just went hard at it. it uh, I got my private and commercial and multi-IFR at the Evident Flying Club through 88, 89. My um, commercial instructor got hired by then Brooker Wheaton, which is now Morningstar Air Express, when Brooker Wheaton first got the Cessna Caravans, for because the, they were even back then a FedEx uh, feeder uh, operator in Canada. And they were brand new caravans. And as a new captain on the caravan, because it's single pilot IFR, they needed to have a safety pilot. So there I am with 200 hours in a multi IFR. So about 240 hours total. And he says, you want a job at Brooker Wheaton? And I'm like, whoa. So yeah, brand new Cessna caravan had eight hours on it and get up at three in the morning and met him down at the hangar and off we go. And I, yeah, that was it, man. Woohoo, I did it. And then, uh, it was like two, the second trip we did. And then the third trip, I get to the hangar and the chief pilot's there. And, and he says, who are you? And I went, well, I'm Norm safety pilot. He says, the, the caravan operation shut down in Alberta. It's in Quebec City. Norm's in Quebec City now. And I went, what? He says, well, uh, since you're here anyway, you might as well just come with me. Oh, Okay. And that was it. I was done. I got my first aviation paycheck was Brooker Wheaton for like $200 for three trips. And then I was like, oh, now I don't have a job. So back to the flying club, get my instructor rating. So by 1991, it was boom, off uh, flight instructing at the Eminem Flying Club. Industry just tanked then. Um, so yeah, instructed for about four years, made it up to class one flight instructor and actually the chief flight instructor for about three weeks before I uh, got on with Voyager. But uh, so, yeah, it was, um, it was an interesting start, you know, but it's funny how it almost found me uh, flying through, through a friend, right. Just because I had discounted it, just thinking that because of uh, a vision issue, I couldn't do it. But once, once that door was open, it was let's go. And that's something that, has never been my experience. I don't wear glasses and I knew that that had been a restriction in place at one time. And I believe now that is no longer the case with working as a pilot in the Canadian forces. I believe you just have to have vision that can be corrected to 2020. And if that includes glasses, it, um, it, it can. But for such a long time, that was such a huge barrier for anyone that wanted to go into the Canadian forces in a piloting context. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But uh, it all worked out in the end. I think uh, the path I took was had worked out well so so the next step of course like anything on the commercial side or civilian side of aviation in Canada the way it works uh, especially back then was yeah you uh, uh, there I am dating myself back when I was younger 
um, was, yeah, you had to build experience and go to the next job, the next job. So I, I got my ATPL as a flight instructor, was the chief flight instructor, um, class one, did a lot of ground school, uh, taught commercial ground school in the instrument, uh, in the IFR department. By the end of it, I was pretty much just doing um, uh, class four flight instructor ratings and instrument ratings. But um, that set up nicely for when the industry started to go again. You know, I tried to going out a few times uh, looking for work elsewhere, but man, it was it was the classic. They wanted 2,000 hours to fly a 185. It was just insane. And there is that stigma about being a flight instructor, right? Ah, you've just got, you know, 1,800 hours of the same one hour, right? What, what is that? You know, it's, it's, it's not real flying. So there was, I think, some bias and against instructors, except for the, com the company that actually hired me, which was Voyager Airways out of North Bay, Ontario. So uh, there was a bit of um, almost, uh, what would you call it, a, um, you know, uh, a great migration out of the Edmonton Flying Club to Voyager Airways there. First, uh, a fellow went, uh, one of the more senior instructors, he got a job. Then he vouched for me and then I got a job and then I vouched for two other instructors and they got jobs. So by uh, 1995, uh, in I think it was January, February, in that range, um, I've been pestering Voyager and uh, the chief pilot, then Dave, I call him up just out of the blue and it's Dave, what's happening? And he says, oh my God, John, I forgot about you. We got, we're doing interviews. Uh, this was a Monday. He says, we're doing interviews Wednesday morning. Can you get here? <laughs> yes, I can. So boom, on Canada 3000, get into Toronto, rent a car, drive up to North Bay, interview, and then stayed overnight. And on the drive back, called him the next morning. And he says, yeah, you got the job. Yay. So that was quite memorable, being in that phone booth <laughs> on the side of the uh, highway, heading back to Toronto. And then, uh, yeah, getting back uh leaving the flying club packing up my uh my my wife heather we weren't married at the time but uh i said uh here we go we're going to timmins and she kind of rolled her eyeballs and went what the hell's timmins i said that's where shania twain's from i can't be all that bad <laughs> so i went out first i went out first and uh, did the training on the king air and uh voyager always loved instructors because you know, already having an ATPL teaching in the instrument department, the whole IFR thing was was secondhand. I mean, it was very easy to do and always flying with somebody and flying from the right seat. Uh, they did check you out as a captain. You got a captain PPC, but your first, uh, you know, um, probably, you know, six months to a year was roughly the amount of time to get left seat. But um yeah, no, the industry really broke open and a lot of Voyager guys were going to Air Ontario at that time. So in five months, I was captain on the King Air. And so by the summer, yeah, you're captain and um, it's extremely frightening. It was uh, a lot of pressure. And, and even at that time, they're like, okay, um, we're, we're lining you up to be a training pilot as well. <laughs> I said, I can barely spell King Air, let alone you know, you're asking me to be a captain and then, but that's the way the industry was, right? And, um, but Voyager had a lot of great um, culture in their company in terms of standard operating procedures, CRM. I think a pretty good training program uh, because they, they were a company that 
was a progressive or in terms of pilot progression, they had high turnover. So the way that they flew uh, supported a lot of pilots that didn't have a lot of experience or they knew that the churn rate was quite high. So uh, everything was very regimented and uh, by the book as it were. So, so yeah, my captain. And then um, I was able to get my job at Nighthawk next. So again, the industry was opening up so fast that, um, you know, a job to fly, it actually was to fly a beach 99 for night, for Nighthawk down in Ottawa. It'd be a favor for, for my wife to get out of Timmins because after it was only a year, we were there just over a year and I was already moving on to another job. And this was a great uh, uh, piece of advice that was given to me is that when you interview for a company, prepare for the largest aircraft or most complex aircraft they have. So I read everything about turbojet regulations and operations because they also had the Falcon 20s, but I was being hired for a King Air 99 job. But I read everything about, you know, vertical noise abatement procedures, turbojet regs for holds. Uh, we hadn't quite gotten to the cars yet. We were still in the A&Os back then, but all the regulations with regards to turbine, uh, large transport category aircraft regulation and operation. And uh, so I got a, I got a, um, a chance meeting with the, the then chief pilot. Um, and he was up visiting family in Timmins. So I, I drove to meet him for Tim Hortons. And we had a ch quick chat and he said, uh, you know, that went very well. And so it was about a month later, invited down for an interview. And then in the interview, they asked a ton of questions about turbojet operations. And I got every one of them. And so uh, they said uh, about it the next day, yep, you're hired for the, for the Beach 99. Uh, you're going to start in a couple months. It was like, awesome. So back up to Timmins. Hey, we're going to move on. Tell Voyager, blah, 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 and this and that. And um, they were sad, but... Uh, it was interesting that I left Timmins with uh, the guy that trained me because he just got hired by Air Ontario. And uh, yeah, high turnover rate. But anyway, just before I left, though, it was a Saturday, Saturday morning, and uh, the chief pilot called and he says, um, I know you, we were asking you to start in a month, but can you start on Monday? Because a spot opened up on the Falcon, a guy left, and we've got a SIM slot in Dallas. Can you be in Dallas on Monday? I went, you, you better believe I can. So, you know, you don't make your luck. I think you make your own luck. Like if you, if you prepare and plan and get ahead, you know, you can set yourself up for success. So I didn't go into Nighthawk with the mindset of being a beach captain. It was, no, I want to get on the Falcon and get that kind of experience. So I ensured that during the interview process that I was, you know, prepared for that and yeah an opportunity showed up and they were confident in my knowledge and off we went so in just over I guess it would have been about 15 months I went from flying 157 152s to a Falcon 20 and that's how fast the industry could move right it's just ridiculous and then yeah so went captain on the Falcon about a year later and uh, everybody from there was going on to Canada 3 and Emirates and 
not so much to Canadian Airlines or Air Canada. They hadn't quite gotten going yet, but um, certainly uh, Canada 3000 was, was hiring a lot. But uh, then uh, an opportunity came up with uh, Canadian regional airlines. And uh, my wife and I being both from Edmonton, we're kind of pining for the West after being in Ontario for a while. And uh, yep, interviewed and got a job with Canadian on the Dash 8. So uh, that worked out well. And uh, that was going to be move number seven in five years. So that was the other. You got addicted to it, though. The, the moving was exciting. It was ridiculous. We had a thousand pounds of stuff because that was the bill for every move was a thousand pounds of stuff from the moving company. <laughs> and yeah, a lot of stuff never gets unpacked. But um, you kind of got addicted to it, though. And we finally put down roots. Eventually, when I got to the TSB, it was weird. After like two years, you're like, oh, we got to move. <laughs> you know, it was you kind of got uh, you like the excitement of it, the new places, new people. But yeah, got uh, got with Canadian Regional and that went well. And uh, they wanted me in the training department, but I said no. I, eventually, yes, but not not now. I learned to later learned that yeah, to be a, in the training department, all you do is work the sim. And back then, they were predominantly in Seattle, so you spent almost all your time in Seattle. Rarely were you home, so it was quite kind of a, a tough job being in the training department. So I wasn't too. Uh, wasn't too upset I didn't get into that aspect of it but um, so flew there for almost two years and then um, got this odd call one day I was uh, in the crew room in Edmonton between um, for a short little break before we were heading off again to Grand Prairie or something and um, and it the industry had uh, this was uh, getting into early 1999 Canadian Airlines was uh, had just uh, sprouted their proud wings livery and new uniforms and things were apparently looking really good. They were starting to do flow, th flow through agreement with Canadian Regional. So Canadian Regional was starting to lose guys. And uh, so the math was looking like I'd be captain on the dash by the fall of 99. So that was, you know, exciting because when I got to Regional, it was, you know, 50 at least 50 percent pay cut from left seat on the falcon and i had to go back to flight instructing to make ends meet it was uh it was ridiculous uh to be at the airlines and making twenty four thousand a year right it was like uh, but welcome to aviation right but uh it was going well and so we saw yeah left seat coming up so big pay raise and uh yeah we were thinking wow this is this is could be the uh kind of the solid base we would need to start our family etc and then out of the blue get this call um dispatch calls me he says john you got to call home and i'm like oh that's never a good sign so i call heather and I say what's up she says you got a call from harry from the safety board <laughs> i go what he says yeah he wants uh, wants to know if you want to compete for a job at the as an aircraft accident investigator and i'm like how the heck did so I, I had enough time that I called Harry and, uh, and he told me that they were hiring for an investigator position and they'd gone over to Transport Canada's uh, resume stack to look for pilots. And like anybody in the aviation industry, you always have, I call them, um, you know, lifesavers. You know, you never know when you're going to need a job. So I had thrown a resume into the pool at Transport Canada just in case, because you always heard it's not if you're going to get laid off in aviation, it's when. 
So I had just thrown in a resume at Transport. It was in a stack. And uh, Harry had gone through the stack looking for, and he saw mine. And so he cold called me to see if I was interested in competing. And I kind of took me by surprise. And I'm like, what the heck is this all about? So when the pairing was done and I got home, I talked to Heather about it and did a ton of research on the safety board and what was involved and did a bunch of reading. And it really piqued my interest. By then, even uh, only having flown airlines for two years or regional airlines for two years, I could see the, uh, the monotony in it uh, in terms of you become very familiar with a aircraft type. Uh, I'm a professed aviation geek. I like all things aviation and uh, learning and, and dash eight flying was the best flying you could ever get. Lots of takeoffs and landings, mountain flying. It was challenging. It was engaging. It was a, a ton of fun. But even then I was, it was starting to get a little bit of that rut, but I figured well, you know, when you go left seat, that's a whole other, you know, regime. So that would certainly, uh, you know, uh, engage my, uh, my, my, my need to learn and, and stay involved. But then this job came up, right. And then with it came all these other aspects of working for the federal government, which is a really attractive pension benefits, the whole idea of nine to five, until unless you get deployed for an accident, but you know, a Monday to Friday job essentially. But the real hard part was the idea of more or less giving up a, a flying job. Yes, there was gonna be flying at the safety board, but it was just enough to keep your licenses current. It was a requirement there that you have to keep a valid and current ATPL. And then, um, and whatever, it was basically the minimum amount to keep that active. You had to have, you had to be certified. So. So that was going to go from predominantly flying job to a job that was totally different with a little bit of flying on the side. So yeah, it was a, it was a tough spring because I, I said, yeah, when you're presented an opportunity, go for it. Cause competing and interviewing doesn't cost you anything. It's a good experience. Um, and it was, and, uh, and thankfully, you know, in the federal government staffing is, moves at a glacial pace <laughs> it's not fast so you know it gave me a lot of time to think and ruminate about making such a big change and then eventually yep I won I was invited to do you want the job and of course by then it was very imminent that I'd be left seat in the dash eight just a few months away because the seniority numbers were coming up and that was basically the next bid which would be in a matter of eight weeks I'd, I'd get left seat and it was like, holy cow. But, um, but we decided to do it. So, and the other bonus was the job was back in Edmonton. So we would be coming back home. So we were, you know, a little homesick after running around for the better part of six years and uh, which isn't much really. Um, and then there I was, as they say, flying a desk. And yeah, it was a strange, strange transition to go from operational flying, which is very, you know, very active and upbeat and, dun, 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 fly, 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 and run from gate to gate and pack your bags and to, now you have to sit there at a computer. And they must've laughed at me the first few months at the office. Cause I'd be just walking up and down the halls. <laughs> I should be doing something else. What's going on? Relax, John. It's okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah. And don't regret 
don't regret it at all. The, yeah, obviously I'm still here 22 years later, but um, yeah, it's, uh, and then, yeah, just tackled the job. It's, uh, which we'll talk about more, but um, it certainly has scratched every itch I've ever had about aviation for sure. And you get the bonus of learning all sorts of new aircraft, even though you're not, you know, checked out on them and proficient in them, but doing familiarization courses and all sorts of different types of airplanes and helicopters, et cetera. It's just been fantastic. So, so yeah, that's how I got there. So it's been, um, if you would have told me when I was 18, who thought he was going to be a musician or in the music industry that, no, in, you know, about 35 years, you're going to be an aircraft accident investigator. <laughs> what? <laughs> Where did that come from? Right. It's, uh, yeah, it's been a great ride but don't regret any of it. That's for sure. And then of course, hindsight, you know, I look like some kind of, uh, you know, uh, I can see into the future because unfortunately the guy that was right next to me in the seniority list, he went captain two months after I left. And then in about 18 months, he had, that's when Canadian went under. They all amalgamated into jazz and the guys that were at Canadian regional were so junior to the Airbnb seniority list that um, unless you went to Toronto, that was about the only way you could really try to maintain your current position if you were actually a captain. But even then it would probably be more of a senior FO. So a lot of people, um, yeah, it, it was pretty rough going there. You know, 9-11 didn't help um, in terms of, you know, the whole fiscal solvency of a lot of airlines around the world doesn't take much to unsteady a, uh, an airline company and 9-11 was certainly a test so yeah I dodged that bullet and um, and a few others that came later you know the big volcanic ash thing uh, the big financial collapse in 2008 and even COVID now right so all my contemporaries and friends that have been in the industry um, yeah it's been it's not been fun watching what they've had to go through in terms of pay cuts, loss, losing jobs. Hey, I'm at Home Depot now for a while. Um, and that kind of uh, tumultuousness, which I I'm a bit of a control freak. And that whole aspect of aviation never sat well with me right from the beginning, where things out of your control will directly dictate the quality of your life you know, whether you have a job or not, or take a, at least a 50% pay cut or have to move, right? And you have no control over it. So that was another kind of big kind of linchpin thing too of, of joining the government for a little more stability and being around too, and because we wanted kids. So being around with the kids, uh, this job certainly facilitates that, yeah. Now you touched on the idea of luck and what I've always heard about luck is that it's a little bit about being in the right place at the right time, but also being ready to take the opportunity as it comes. Oh yeah. And that's definitely. just sort of having the right experience, having the right training, the right know-how. And in your case, it came down to the fact that you prepared for the Falcon as opposed to the beach 1900. And it just is, it's these little things of being in the right place at the right time and also ready to take the opportunity oh, totally. and yeah. that overall is luck. Yeah. Now we've touched on the TSB, but what officially is the Transportation Safety Board? Well, if we go back to the International Civil Aviation Organization, Chicago Convention of 1947, um, Canada is an ICAO compliant country. 
Canada is part of the, the group of countries that make up ICAO. And in there, there's a bunch of recommendations, uh, standard practices, best practices, et cetera, et cetera. And one of them is, of course, a state safety program. And in that state safety program, the state being Canada, or Canada safety program, which actually is a responsibility of Transport Canada, mostly, but also what's required is an independent accident investigation agency. And that does safety investigations to determine what happened, why it happened, and make recommendations to prevent recurrence. So to be compliant as much as you can with ICAO, uh, Canada, the Canadian government, um, has the Transportation Safety Board. So yes, we are federal government, but we're independent, meaning that we are not part of the regulator or we're not part of another ministry or agency. We are totally separate. We're not represented by a political figure, so to speak, or a minister. Um, and as such, it gives us the, um, not only the optics of being independent, but the actual true mechanisms of independence to conduct investigations and go after and seek information wherever we, wherever we want without somebody telling us, no, you can't do that. And also it, it serves to the Canadian public uh, a level of transparency that shows that, no, we're not being, we're not um, answering to a different level of government. We're not answering to a different agency. Um, it used to be up until about 1982, it was a Department of Transport Canada. And uh, when they had the tragedy in Cranbrook with the 737, which was a, uh, a go around where one thrust reverser didn't um, retract and they lost roll control um, and then went off into the off the side of the runway there. Uh, in that investigation, there were a lot of implications with um, Transport Canada that ran the airport and the air traffic services provided by that, um, that airport. And of course, Transport Canada was conducting the safety investigation and the parallel fatality inquiry done by a, a coroner slash judge questioned that and went, hey, you can't investigate yourself here. And they kind of went, wow. So the fallout from that occurrence investigation and the fatality inquiry was the creation of the Canadian Aviation Safety Board. So when that agency was created, it was independent, but they only did one mode of investigation and that was air. So they trundled along, they did a, you know, some pretty landmark investigations um, um, they did uh, Dryden, the F-28 Air Ontario. And then the one that was the big game changer was uh, Gander, Newfoundland with the uh, DC-8 that crashed on takeoff that was filled with uh, American servicemen coming back from the Middle East. And in that investigation, um, there was a dissenting group of board members and there was a bit of a disagreement about what the underlying factors were as the cause of that accident. It got very public, it got mixed up in the media, and in the end was quite an embarrassment to the uh, federal government. It was an embarrassment to the agency itself. And the only way out of it was to dissolve the Canadian Aviation Safety Board. And so out of that rose the Transportation Safety Board. And when they had the opportunity to create the TSB, they looked south at the NTSB and some of the other multimodal agencies around the world and said, well, 
let's bring in other federally regulated modes of transportation as well. So that's when they added rail, marine, and pipeline. Now, I'm no, I don't investigate those. I'm an air investigator. But uh, in those other federally regulated modes of transportation, that's what the TSB does is they have you know, investigators that specialize in those modes and will conduct independent safety investigations um, into those occurrences. So the TSB was created in 1991 and uh, yeah, I've never looked back since. So there was still the first 10 years. I mean, I joined in 99 and even then the, the pressure to, I'll put this bluntly, to not screw up, which was the Gander accident investigation or was very high. Like everybody was extremely concerned that, um, you know, people still remembered that and we didn't want the agency to fail. So when Swiss Air happened in 1998, that was the huge test. I mean, that was an extremely, um, uh, besides being a significant tragedy, but also, uh, you know, the test for the TSB. Mm -hmm. This is it. Don't screw up. And actually, one of our past executive directors uh, once said, you know, when you're in a, in a line of work like safety agencies are, where our only tool is an argument for change, you are only as good as your last investigation. You will take a lifetime to build trust and confidence in the system, but you will lose it or could lose it in one investigation. So the pressure is always there. And it's, you know, I would say it was probably at its ultimate there in uh, 1998. It certainly um, was felt again in Lac Megantic with that rail tragedy. And again, just the, the, you know, the intense scrutiny of what this independent agency is going to do for Canadians, you know, certainly ramps up when you have those very high profile occurrences. And, um, and that's actually in, a, in one way what makes the job extremely challenging, you know, and engages people because this is it, this is your chance. It's also your chance to fail. <laughs> and, uh, you know, potentially, um, you know, the whole reputation of the agency could be extremely uh, altered or even lost, and it may have to be dis dismantled. But uh, thankfully, uh, you know, we haven't been there. So um, the other thing to keep in mind, too, with safety investigations uh, in the TSB, and I keep in emphasizing safety investigation, is... The reason that we're created is when you have a tragedy and a, a loss of life, especially a large loss of life, very sudden, um, the Canadian public and other you know, groups of people in other countries just don't like that. And they wanna know why it happened. And they need that independent group to be able to, to do a very thorough, logical, scientific investigation into what happened and then of course come around to hopefully explain why it happened and what issues were underlying that need to be addressed by the people who make the changes to make the system better. Um, so the, um, the point I was trying to make uh, is to understand that in the safety investigation, that's the goal. It is not to assign blame it is not to apportion liability. 
It's not to point fingers. It's not to say your fault, you screwed up because that gets nobody anywhere. That's the philosophy. Um, if a pilot forgets to put the gear down, airplane gets uh, you know damaged, going to the chief pilot office, you're fired. What have they done to understand why the gear was wasn't extended? You know, like what you're just the conditions that were present for that pilot to land gear up are going to be there again for the next pilot who takes his job. You haven't fixed anything. You just replaced one pilot with another pilot. So the goal of the safety board, of course, is to try to, or any safety investigation, to identify those underlying issues. And uh, by understanding them and communicating them to the people that do make the changes, uh, hopefully we can make the system better. So that's, uh, that's who the safety board is. We're tiny compared to, let's say, Transport Canada, um, our other big uh, safety watchdog in Canada. The regulator is kind of interesting because they have to be proactive. They ensure a safe system through regulation and audit and assessment of how people are doing in that system. There are you know, several thousand people, uh, a very large budget, maybe at least a billion dollars, whereas the safety board is 235 people total. There's only 48 in the air branch and we have a $30 million budget. But we only show up on when bad things happen though. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, we are a reactive agency for the most part. Um, we do have some tools that we do use that are a little more proactive. Uh, safety issues investigations uh, um, come out when we uh, feel that there may be an issue that we see in a group of investigations that uh, if we study those, we may be able to find a common theme. And without waiting for an accident to happen, we can study the data set and then maybe come out with some recommendations. Now, as you mentioned, each mode of transportation has their own set of investigators uh, yep. assigned to uh, incidents and accidents of that mode. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about the training that investigators go through once they get on with the agency uh, yeah. and maybe some of the similar items that come up through the different multimodal training? Sure. Um, well, let's talk specifically about air investigators. Uh, it's funny, you uh, when you come from flying an aircraft, and we just don't hire pilots for the air investigators. We also hire aircraft maintenance engineers, professional engineers, uh, air traffic controllers. But um, uh, speaking on uh, pilots specifically, if you're hired as an operations investigator, uh, which means, yeah, you have to have an ATPL. And, you know, typically our average age of hire is 46 years of age. You've got typically 20 odd years in the industry already. But the moment you become an investigator, you stop being a pilot. So you go from an expert in whatever aircraft type that you were currently flying to now a generalist. So investigators, uh, the skill set is so different. Um, and yes, we do rely on our past experience as being pilots, but this whole new area of what it means to be an investigator and what the tasks are, yeah, results in a training program that's... Uh, I think I was probably doing the job for about four years before I started to actually start to feel a little bit of comfort in how to do it and approach the job. Uh, it's much like an apprenticeship where 
There's lots of on-the-job training interspersed with the formal training. But because the skill set is, is quite unique, a lot of people don't come into the work having all this these skill sets because they are rather unique. I would say it's getting better now, though, because in 2005 with Transport Canada requiring safety management systems at the airlines, I mean, that's amazing. That's been already 15 years ago. We're starting to see people coming into the TSB from their flying jobs that grew up in a safety management system with a safety management program, which involves uh, risk assessing hazards, uh, conducting investigations internally, and uh, you know, basically doing investigations and having a little taste of what that is. So when they come to the safety board, nowadays, I would say they're a little bit more versed because within their own company's SMS department, uh, they're conducting interviews, you know, collecting data, writing, you know, trying basically doing what we do at the safety board, albeit maybe on smaller issues, maybe ones that we wouldn't even uh, be interested in. But nonetheless, the steps are the same. Mm -hmm. Now, with the specific sort of investigator school, I'm going to call it, when you first get on with the TSB, right. what are some of the, uh, I guess, what are some of the points that are taught when you're oh part of gosh. that sort of yeah. first two years? Yeah, it's when you start to write out or you see an investigator work description or you try to start to describe the skills that uh, or competencies that we train into investigators, it's um, it gets to be a bit of a laundry list. <laughs> That's for sure. So, uh, Obviously, the first thing, report writing or technical writing, it's, uh, it's a skill set that if you come with a bit of a, a talent for that or from a job where you were writing, even summary reports, you're, you got a bit of a leg up because writing is a large part of it. It's also an intimidating part of the work. And for some, historically over the years, uh, has been a reason why some people have left because the pressure to write when you find it very difficult is overwhelming because it, you got to get the report done, right? I mean, that's our product at the end of all of this is a report. Now, the agencies recognize that and things have advanced just so much. So since I've been hired in terms of the training we get as writers, but also um, having technical writers and editors uh, available now to help out a lot more. There's uh, more of these resources available to help the investigator rather than Decades ago, it was like, write a report, get it done. See you later, you know, and then oh, you try to write this thing. And then, <laughs> and then everybody looks at it and go, this is garbage. <laughs> Did you write that with a crayon? You know, so it's gotten a lot better, but it's still uh, uh, a really important skill set. Uh, photography, one of our big data collection techni um, uh, techniques is photography. So Digital photography, we do have um, uh, two photographers at our lab that are um, go out to do the large investigations. Anytime you have lots and lots of material to, to examine, uh, requires more people. So if I go out to a small general aviation accident and it's 2,000 pounds of wreckage, it's only 30 feet long and 30 feet wide, yeah, two people can handle that. But you go up to a triple seven, and now you have tons of wreckage, uh, hundreds of feet long, hundreds of feet wide, and a massive wreckage trail. It's a huge job to, to capture all that data, measure it, photograph it. So we do have dedicated 
uh, photographers for the bigger jobs, they're, they work multimodally. So whatever mode it is, they'll go out. But for the smaller uh, investigations that we respond to regionally, um, yeah, the investigators, we typically go out in a team of two. And of course, one of them, actually both of us will do a complete set of pictures. So knowing how to take pictures for the, uh, for the job requires a certain technique for accident investigation photography. You get trained on that. Interviewing, that's a huge skill set. And we basically have a three-part training idea behind that. There's the initial training with lots of um, scenarios uh, to practice. It's, uh, I think right now we're at at least a three to five day course. Then after you do that, you do, of course, you're on the job training, interviewing. So when you actually go do investigations, you're with obviously somebody who's more senior and you practice. And then there's recurrent interviewing training. So we're always coming back to uh, uh, replenishing the skill set and all your interviews, not all of them, but a good portion of them are reviewed by management. Like my guys, when they come back, I'll pick the odd one out just to listen to, to hear how they're doing. Um, and that's uh, a skill set that you constantly have to practice because mm -hmm. it is um, a very important part of the job. We can get a lot of great information, but if you don't do it right, you can lose a lot of great information. Handling the media, that's uh, at the safety board, the investigator in charge uh, for the investigation is responsible for being the contact for the media. So yeah, there's media training. We uh, learn how the media works. We practice uh, press scrums, one-on-one uh, -on -one interviews, um, you know, doing remote interviews, you know, where you just have a camera operator and he's reading questions from a reporter in a different city and they're just recording your response uh so anyway yeah that uh again we have that recurrent training beyond the original training and then there's on the job training what else do we have we have uh dealing with the family loved ones survivors next to kin training that's uh, a very pivotal part of our work in terms of um it's also very stressful uh, when we have to go in and uh, work with the family members after a tragedy, they've, they've lost a loved one. So mm -hmm. what's, in, what's tricky about that whole environment is we recognize that they need information. I mean, that's just part of our agency. We have a policy on it that we will provide information to uh, the survivors, loved ones, and families of tragedies. And, but also we need to get information. So if we have a pilot who's died, what's critical in starting to understand the human factors portion of our data collection is starting to learn who this person was and what was their overall history? What was their uh, immediate history, their 72 hour history prior to that? So we got to find out everything that we can and it can be very personal. You're asking about health conditions, you're asking about financial conditions, family stressors, um, I mean, it's very, it's intimate. It's, and you're at, and you're trying to get this information at a time when they've just lost a loved one. Right. So it's, it's quite a dynamic, uh, environment to work in. And as such, of course, we, we have training for that on the job training, uh, as well. And we also on that theme have critical incident stress management training for our own selves. 
because it can be quite a, as I say, a sporty event when you go to uh, an aircraft accident, which can represent very high velocities, high energy, you can do the math in terms of what that does to not only the aircraft, but also to a human being. So you don't get, it's the, it's the unpleasant portion of the job for some. Um, obviously gruesome, probably doesn't do it justice sometimes, but uh, we have to look out for each other as investigators. And so we get annual training on that. And it's uh, mental health awareness within the TSB now is, uh, is at a great place. It's, it's come so far uh, in the last 20 years in terms of support for the investigation uh, team and also um, just being aware of it and how to manage it to try to manage it because you know when you deal with these events it's not so much like wow look there's a few dead people that's it i quit no it's it's more of a cumulative issue over time so if people start to have issues it's typically from my experience 15 to 20 years into doing the job that uh you know, it may accumulate along with where you are in your own life and on your personal side. And then you go into the stressors of doing the job that we do. That's where, you know, you can start, as I call it, reaching the limiter. <laughs> You've got your jar of what I can do and hold. And it's the last you know pebble that goes in that may, boop, <laughs> you know, you may exceed your ability to handle the stress or your ability to uh, recover is lower or your resilience becomes reduced. And that's mm -hmm. when the job can start to get really tough. Now I mentioned back, our typical average age of hire is about 45. And I said, a lot of these stressors can typically crop up at 15 to 20 years in, which is when people retire. So it's unfortunate, but that's um, sometimes been the reality of when people leave the job I don't want to say they say they've had enough, but there is certainly a sentiment there that, yeah, I think it's about, yeah, it's, it's been a great job. You do a lot of great things, but there is this aspect of it that, that can be a bit of a grind, a little bit of a, a pressure point. And we try to manage that through our mental health programs at the TSB and, uh, and looking out for each other. So again, this critical incident stress management training is uh, a recurrent training and, uh, we keep up with that. Um, investigators have to be, I don't want to call, <laughs> I'm going to get everybody angry, materials engineers to a certain degree. So when we're in the field and we start looking at a, a broken up aircraft, we're looking for good breaks and bad breaks. Like what normally breaks when you hit the ground really hard and what does it look like versus, oh, that looks different. So we call it basic failures, materials failure analysis. So we get trained on that. How do composites fail? How do metals fail? Ductile metals, brittle metals. Um, and that's a uh, big time on the job. We get a bit of a course. Uh, you can read some books, articles on it, but really it's in the field work as you go through every accident that you go to, you gain a little bit of extra knowledge on, okay, this was a low energy, stall at low altitude. We hardly see any disruption. This is what aluminum looks like. This is what steel looks like when it's kind of goes through this type of energy versus a spiral dive accident where the energy is boop, off the clock. Um, and this is how these materials break. Now we're fully supported by our lab, which has the real engineers. So 
But we as investigators in the field have to determine out of this big pile and in the context of the accident, what's a good break, what's a bad break, like what makes sense. Um, it may get to the point where we'll have the engineers fly out to the accident site in some circumstances. Aircraft in-flight breakups are probably the most important to try to understand. Did this airplane fail in flight because of fatigue-related issues, or did it fail because the circumstances were that it exceeded its ultimate design load limit? That's mm -hmm. a good break in a weird way. A bad break is when it failed way before it should have. Yeah. So uh, in in-flight breakups, that's where, yeah, everybody's eyebrows get, okay, yeah, this is important. And so we may actually bring the engineers out from the lab to the accident site or the first place where the wreckage gets recovered to look at it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, yeah, we may send parts to our lab and that's where the full analysis, metallurgical analysis happens. We get the reports written by the engineers to say exactly what this type of failure was, what the material was made out of, did it meet the design spec as intended by the manufacturer, et cetera, et cetera. But an investigator needs that level of knowledge, uh, a basic level, at least to, to get the job going. Occupational health and safety, obviously, going to an accident site is not uh, a safe place. <laughs> so we have lots of OSH training in terms of uh, you name it, and that's all recurrent training, uh, wilderness first aid, standard first aid, uh, bloodborne pathogen, uh, materials handling, uh, dangerous goods awareness, confined space awareness. Um, I'm probably missing a few. <laughs> but anyway, we got to do the job safely, right? It's, uh, we don't want to go out and, uh, and get hurt while working. Digital work tools, everything we do now is digital. So when you come to the safety board, yeah, it's pretty much everybody's pretty savvy with a computer, but we got to take it up a few notches because all the photography, the audio recordings we make for interviews, the 99% of the data we collect now is digital and it goes into digital filing system. So, and yeah, working at home now um, because of COVID, um, virtual private networks, uh, networking period, computer, computer, computer. I could go on for days, but um, we get training on that. And uh, it's continually changing, of course. Presentation, public speaking skills. <laughs> In our mandate, yeah, we investigate. We determine uh, underlying factors. We communicate. We make recommendations. And we report publicly. And part of getting the message out there is doing things like this. It's going to conferences. It's going to flying schools. Um, it's providing training. Um, and with all that comes presentation skills. So it's one of the things that when I'm, I conduct uh, hiring for my office and a lot of the other regional managers too, is we usually try to explore that area with candidates in terms of how are you with public speaking? Where's your comfort level at? And in a weird way, touching back on my previous aspirations in music, in doing um, music performance, you kind of get over that, you get used to public performance as it were. And that's what you do when you go to conferences and stuff, you're performing, you're, you're doing a bit of a show. So Having that skill set uh, is great if you come with to the TSB with it, 
And of course we encourage it and practice it and um, try to get the guys out there. It's also a nice um, deviation from the work itself because it's quite positive. I mean, you're out there. Yes, the subject matter can be sad. You know, people have died in this accident, but you're trying to relay a safety message and, and trying to make people aware of issues. And with that is a certain amount of enthusiasm and positive feedback. So that's, that's good for the investigators to experience too. Uh, travel skills. <laughs> this is kind of weird, but yeah, we do travel a lot. And there's also the potential uh, to travel around the world on very short notice, because of course, uh, under uh, ICAO, because we're an ICAO country and Canada makes uh, aerospace products, we will support other nations' investigations into Canadian built equipment. So one of my memorable experiences way back when was getting a call and saying, basically in six hours, you're gonna be in Taiwan. They had a Dash 8 accident on a little island just off the main coast of China. And uh, hey, John, you used to fly Dash 8s and it's a Canadian aerospace product and uh, Canadian built engines, Pratt & Whitney engines. So we supported the uh, Taiwanese investigation. So yeah, in six hours, I'm trying to figure out how to spell Taiwan and Taipei what's the weather like, and then go, right? Nowadays, it, it's quite easy. Back then, even cell phones, uh, you couldn't really use your cell phone in a different country back then. You had to always rent one at the airport. And, and even money too was, was a bit sketchy in terms of how you were going to pay for things. But, uh, you know, with nowadays, it's, it's a lot more streamlined getting from country to country. But um, having a little routine and, uh, like I said, a skill set of how you can do your digital workflow in any country when you're traveling um, is, 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 is a good challenge. <laughs> and uh, we don't really have a course on it, but if, if you're going to be somebody that may be tapped to do that type of work, yeah, there, we do have some training on that. Um, leadership skills. Everybody that comes to the TSB as an investigator, it is by definition a management position. Because when you are an investigator in charge, you are leading a team. It can be as small as four to five people, but it can be as many as 30 to 60. And liaising with many foreign countries. So as a result, um, we don't particularly have like, here's a leadership course. Uh, we certainly encourage investigators if they feel that they would like to get better at it provide training within the federal government on leadership skills. Obviously it's on the job training. Every investigation you do, we call it, you know, you've got your training wheels on as an investigator in charge with either me or another senior investigator helping out along every step of the way and discussing every action you're going to take and how it affects everybody in communication skills, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's an ongoing um, experience and opportunity to learn and improve. Everybody can improve on that. That's for sure. And I think I've pretty much touched the last one, investigation uh, methodology uh, and human factors. So we have our own internal human factors course. Uh, I think a stat that's thrown around quite liberally, you know, around 90, 85, 90% of all aircraft occurrences are human related in one way or another. It's very rare to get just purely a mechanical issue. I've only ever done two out of, I'm coming up to a thousand investigations now and only two have been purely a mechanical, oh, 
you know, in the flight, you know, the nothing to do with the flight crew whatsoever. That's how good uh, aerospace engineering is. If the maintenance is done right, um, that to have a, a part fail by design is, is so rare. So consequently, yeah, we have lots of training in human factors, but like uh, material safety analysis, we also have human factor specialists at our head office, the PhDs. Uh, they're the, you know, they, they're the, um, uh, the go-to source for everything about human factors. So the investigator, again, is a generalist and manages a team of experts uh, to help, you know, uh, understand what and why an occurrence happened. But we have to have a foundational level of understanding of human factors. So we do get training on that. And it's on the job training and ongoing training, because as we bring in specialists into the work, yeah, we're always learning from them which is, again, a great feature of the job. I'm sort of uh, thinking back uh, the idea of not necessarily being a materials specialist, but a yes. generalist. It's knowing what an aircraft looks like when it has burned and then crashed versus crashed and then burned. The metal exactly. is going to act, yeah. metal is going to react completely differently to those two scenarios. If I remember correctly, if an aircraft uh, has a fire and then crashes, it will burn hotter. Potentially, yeah. Potentially. Yep. Uh, so there's that factor. So there's that element of the investigator uh, experience and training. Uh, even with the sort of uh, occupational health and safety and biohazard training, it's yep. you go to an aircraft and that has had an accident. There's all the, I mean, the hydraulic fluid, mm -hmm. fuel, if it's not a fuel exhaustion uh, investigation. And it's, I guess, relatively easier to know if it's fuel exhaustion, depending on if it burned or not after yep. it crashed. Uh, but then, of course, just I mean, there could be human biohazard, but just metal, wires, everything that fuel oh, yeah, yeah, the ground and and, and experience has told the accident investigation. I don't want to call it an industry, but uh, you know, experience worldwide that bloodborne pathogens have actually they've reduced uh, its uh, risk level or hazard in terms of what's going to get you as an investigator. Um, there was a huge emphasis in the late eighties, early nineties because of AIDS. Of and, uh, that was really brought up, uh, to the forefront, this concern about bloodborne pathogens and not just AIDS, but also hepatitis A and B and, uh, a few others. But, um, experience has shown though, um, that a lot of those viruses don't, don't last at all very long once, once someone has died. And um, what we find that where people are getting hurt has nothing to do with that. So what's interesting, the, uh, just thinking back at the TSB, the only injuries that we've had that were moderate or even getting close to serious have all been in car accidents, getting to and from the accident site. Wow. Yeah. So that was kind of a, we were, oh yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, there's been the odd slip and. We've had a few tweaked knees, um, but um, I think, man, it was going back a long time that somebody slipped off a DC three wing and, and broke a, a forearm bone. You know, that was, gosh, that was in our region in the mid to late eighties. I think it was, but, um, but it's amazing. Uh, you know, we're always, are we lucky because we're good or are we good because we're lucky? You know, we're always like, 
So we don't take it for granted. Uh, the Occupational Health and Safety Program at the Safety Board, again, in the last 20 years is just so good compared to what it was before. It was, um, you know, not to say bad things about the Safety Board, but we do have safety in our name and it was not managed well. Again, it was just relied on people having good common sense, being diligent. I would say we benefited again from the average uh, age being guys and ladies in their 40s and 50s. The risk reward model for somebody with my color hair is way different than if we were hiring 19 and 20 year olds to go to an accident site. Dude. <laughs> Like, like so, me. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm going to run over there. And I, and whereas, you know, an older guy like me is like, hey, why don't we have lunch first? You know, let's uh, think about this, right? Yeah. Whereas I'm saying, like, we'll have lunch later. We, we got yeah, to get no, Let's just go, 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 go. We don't need sleep. Yeah. We don't. Run faster. <laughs> so, yeah, but that doesn't excuse us from having a good health and safety program, which we do. Yeah. Now it's like night and day from when I was hired. And that's a, that's a good, that's a positive. That's it's, it's nice to see now. So, um, so yeah, I've got every confidence. Uh, we're supported in the regions, anything that we see regionally as a risk or a hazard, as a hazard, we assess it, boom, we get support for it, whether it's buying equipment or getting training. So it's, um, it works out really well. And if it's too dangerous, we just don't go, sorry, we're not going to, uh, hurt people. Um, unnecessarily for this job mm -hmm. yeah the other thing that i find so interesting and really encouraging about the tsv is the fact that there is such a focus on the mental health and wellness of their yep. staff um it would be too easy to sort of say well that's just part of the job and get on with it so i'm really oh, it, it makes me mm -hmm. very happy to hear um and it's i guess as a, a person that flies planes it makes me happy to know that the people who are in charge of looking after investigations when things don't go exactly as yep. planned. Uh, it's nice to know that they're taken care of and that generally they're healthy, happy people. And that is, and that reflects our overall society's approach to mental health. It's not just the TSB, right? Mm -hmm. No, no, no. The, I would love, I'm going to wager a guess that the TSBs change because society is changing. Like people come into the TSB and they go, why are all these uh, sad people at their desks that seem to go drinking a lot? You know, we don't do that anymore, right? Like we're supposed to talk about it. We're supposed to get this and that. So I think a lot of people coming into the TSB from other um, walks of life and jobs where mental health was a little higher, uh, we ourselves internally uh, for a while there were, you know, had a bit of, I wouldn't call it a crisis, but there was a moment there where we added up that we had, you know, a significant number of investigators that were on long-term disability. And it's like, this isn't good. We don't have many investigators. We can't afford to be down that many investigators. Um, you know, at, at the, I guess the, from a fiscal sense, you're paying people to do work that they're not doing. So at that very basic kind of monetary level, that's not good business. But the, the most important part is we've almost failed these people in terms of that's the way it was. It was, this is the job, you know, that's why we hired you. We asked you in the interview, do you mind working with dead people? And you said, of course, no, because you want the job. But in the end, as you, as you did the career, uh, yeah, it was largely that kind of mentality that you would see in the police and fire departments of decades ago, where it was, yeah, you kind of joked about it a little bit, but 
you certainly didn't have a counselor come in in the week after a deployment and have a proper, uh, you know, critical incident stress debrief about it. So no, it's 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 going. It's it's a way of managing it. You're never going to eliminate that hazard. That will always be a hazard of the job. But it's how you're going to address it and and see uh, and manage it. Do you ever think we'll get to a point in aviation overall within an airline context or even just smaller operators where mental health will be so destigmatized as it is at the TSV? Yeah, that's yeah, that's a bit of a crystal ball. I mean, we've come this far already, right? So why not? I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, is it going to be in two years? No. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think uh, as society recognizes it as, a, as an actual injury versus just, oh, they're just having a hard day, right? I think that's, uh, it's going to be, yeah, it'll be, it'll be commonplace. It'll be expected. And uh, yeah, we'll have the tools to, to deal with it. Now, there really is not a typical day for an investigator. And generally we ask, what do typical days look like? So instead, I'm going to wonder, what are some of the different types of tasks that being an investigator can include overall? Well, I touched on them with all the training, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. the, um, you could, you know, one day be going to Mount Royal and doing a, a chat with one of the aviation classes. Um, if you're on duty, which means you're taking the, the calls as they come in. So yeah, you're just on the phone and assessing uh, occurrences as they come in, as whether we're going to do something with them or not. Um, right now, our office is just in the midst of uh, coming back from a deployment. There was a fatal aircraft accident in the Slave Lake area with the Mooney, one pilot on board. And uh, so we just started a, a class four investigation on that. So the routine around when we've just done a deployment and have received the wreckage back at the shop it's extremely busy it's like the the fire hose of activity um and it's it's almost a very steep spike uh of activity in terms of around the debt what we call the data collection field phase where we're just out there grabbing all this information uh and it's the same information regardless of triple seven and atc loss of separation or you know, our, our smaller GA aircraft, the process is the same. You know, there's just a lot of data collection at the beginning. We uh, start to uh, organize the data and start to see through our methodology, which events were safety significant and start to understand the underlying conditions to each of those events. And then maybe more data collection and investigation plan. And, uh, and then it settles down into what you see well, you can't see me doing this, but in front of computers, because now it switches from uh, out and about collecting, kicking tin is the term that's thrown around there, to now we're at our desks and we're going through all this data, organizing it and um, seeing what are the safe, emerging safety issues around this particular occurrence. Um, meetings, writing, meetings, writing, reading, meetings, writing, meetings. <laughs> The exciting part that you see on May Day, uh, people huddled around a bench with broken parts in the simulator out in the field, technically comprises, I would say, an average investigation 
from the time the aircraft accident happens till the public has a piece of paper in their hand is let's say 450 days. That uh, data collection like out about maybe 10. So it's a very short window. It's extremely busy, but what, but it's like an inverted pyramid too, or a triangle. You have the, the, the bulk of the investigation at the top, the final report, the findings, the analysis, all resting on the point of this triangle, which was the initial data collection. Everything builds out from those initial data collection days. So that's why we, we emphasize quite a bit in the training. And that was one course I forgot is we do have basically a, a field phase uh, type of how we collect this data in the field portion. But, uh, and all the instruments that we use besides cameras, inclinometers, uh, GPSs, we're getting more into RPAS or drones, UAV photography, um, and also um, uh, survey work of accident sites. But anyway, that's all at the beginning. And that's where everything is built upon is this very short, tiny window, 10 days, maybe it's probably give or take. And then yeah, the other 400 odd days is, is everything afterwards. So where you are in that inverted triangle is, is quite different in terms of workflow. You know, you're, you're chained to your desk, <laughs> typing away, or yeah, you're out running around, driving, flying, visiting people. Yeah. No, I, we, we generally seem to ask the question, what does a typical day look like in any given role and everyone has the same answer in the beginning of, well, there's no two days that are the same. And yeah. I can imagine, even though there's a lot of routine uh, sort of in the 400 odd days after the initial yes. data collection, yeah. even then it's not the same. You're speaking to different experts. You're trying to follow up more on one lead or you're getting information back related to something you previously yeah. inquired about. So even in those 400 days, there's still a lot of, I would imagine variation in the actual content of the day. Yeah. I mean, to not put a, a government bureaucratic angle on it. To be fair and honest with your question, my day is, I start at eight, I work for an hour and a half, I take a coffee break, I work to lunch, take a half hour lunch, work till 2.30, take a 15 minute coffee break, and then done at four. So that's the routine. And in those times, I'm at the computer. Now, what will happen in those hours while you're working on various jobs. I've got this whole other basket of responsibilities as a regional manager that pertains to managing people, right? That keeps me busy on the human resources side and looking after a building and the equipment, et cetera. But uh, I also investigate too. So um, yeah, it's, um, it's just, yeah, basically that work Monday to Friday, take the weekend off and, uh, and then back at it. But the, so it's a bit like a fireman to a certain degree, but not as quite as intense where you're kind of hanging out at the fire hall doing stuff. And then all of a sudden, bing, 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 the bell goes and then everybody off you go. I mean, we, as of right now, just based on that description of your day, we have the same job. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I think I take the exact same coffee breaks. <laughs> same yep. half hour lunch. It's, it's, it's very, a culture. Yeah. It's a machine. <laughs> <laughs> it is. But what's, what's exciting though, is like I said, in my earlier example is one day that at one of those little coffee breaks, you'll get a phone call and it's, we need you to go here or 
oh, you know, the media is coming to the office to do an interview. Oh, ooh, okay. Now we got to get ready for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're right. There's, there's a certain spontaneity and unknown to the work that I kind of like. It just kind of keeps you on your toes, but it can be problematic for certain personality types to be expected to, you know, change, drop tools, do something else uh, as required. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now we touched on the training that investigators have once they start with the TSB, but is there a specific type of training that someone who would like to be an investigator uh, should maybe have before they apply? Yeah, we get asked that often. And I would say that of all the staffing I've done, we've never taken one candidate over another because they, let's say, went out and paid out of their own pocket and took an accident investigation course with you know, SCSI in Los Angeles or University of Southern California or Emory-Riddle or the FAA or the NTSB. They, these places all offer courses. Cranfield uh, in the UK, um, several thousand dollars just for the course. And then there's living expenses, right? So yeah, you could, you know, spend five, 6,000 bucks to get a accident investigation course, which is two weeks. And all that is, is really a skip off the surface of of the job itself, right? It's, um, it's kind of an awareness course, really, for the most part. Um, they're not bad. Some are better than others. Cranfield's the kind of the gold standard, but it's also six weeks. You know, that's, uh, it's a big course. It's a good one because they do lots of simulation. Some of the other courses, it's just, well, this is what the routine is. These are the topic areas, but you don't really ever practice the skill set of, what do you do when you show up at an accident site? You know, what are the steps you do? How do you measure? How do you do an interview, et cetera? So, um, but once you are, uh, get going though, as an investigator and get all that under your belt, we still do what we call competency training for other topic areas. So you can take courses on fire, uh, explosion, uh, crash survivability, uh, electronics, uh, and avionics. Uh, meteorology, um, aircraft design, aircraft performance. We'll do specific familiar or uh, familiarization courses on specific types. So I've done FAM courses on Boeing 787, 737, Airbus 320, uh, a couple of helicopter types, um, just to kind of get awareness. Again, we're generalists, right? We're not experts. We don't have to do a ride, right? I don't have these endorsements on my license, but at least I, you know, I've done enough studying and then played in the simulator to get an appreciation for a particular type. And so that if we are having a conversation with a pilot after an occurrence, at least I'm halfway kind of, you know, I, I can kind of keep pace with the conversation Mm -hmm. and, and have an awareness and same with our technical investigators who are AMEs by trade, they'll do the same thing. They'll take familiarization courses on, on the types of aircraft that we would tort, uh, maybe typically see in the region that we're in. So unless you have, it's really, it doesn't come down to a matter of what exact training you have in order to get on as a pilot background investigator, yep. then you end up with the hours requirements to be a trans, uh, to be an investigator. You have an ATPL, you need to maintain it, but there isn't really necessarily a breakdown of those flight hours that is more favorable than another. Yeah, we're not a flight department, right? So I got uh, one, a good way to say it, again, this whole idea of being a good generalist. Um, if I were to describe 
the ideal person that I would love to hire, they would be an AME, they'd be a pilot, they'd be an air traffic controller. They would be, um, well, let's throw a metallurgical engineer on top for fun or human factors, PhD, add that. Then the attributes that we're, that we really try to tease out in, in our various, you know, um, interview techniques and, and whatnot and, and activities for our competitions is uh, we're looking for people who are great listeners, first off, um, excellent critical thinkers, um, somebody who's open to all arguments and suggestions. You want to say to somebody, hey, uh, it, this is a, an example that kind of I caught myself, thank goodness, before embarrassing myself, but we got this random email from a fellow after an occurrence where uh, Air Canada 319, you know, got into one of these events and crews hurt some people in the cabin. And this uh, university professor, and I'm like, sure, university professor, he says, well, did you look at the uh, macro scale weather for Southern Alberta for gravity waves? And I'm like, sure, buddy, gravity waves, right. But I didn't, inside I'm going, I've never heard, what the hell is he saying? Like, this doesn't make any sense. But I went, oh, I did the good investigator thing. I said, interesting, I'll check into that. So I don't know, we'll go look it up. Holy cow, there's an actual metal meteorological phenomenon that is called gravity waves. So I'm not going to get into it. But anyway, it's a great example of a good investigator or somebody that is presented with data and they go, their first reaction should always be, thank you for that. That's very interesting. I'm going to check into that. Rather than, no, it's not. You're wrong. It's this way. And so many people default to that. If you've ever been on an aviation chat forum, yeah, most of what you see on there is not good investigator style of engagement when discussing an issue because it's, it's a stance, it's a position, and the rest of you are garbage, right? That is, and unfortunately, that's kind of how human beings, uh, for whatever reason, unless it's a skill set, you have to learn mm -hmm. how to be open to criticism, how to accept new information, and engage with somebody meaningfully that you don't uh, marginalize them by excluding them and then ignoring them. Because mm -hmm. the information they possess could be extremely key. I had another great example. We were doing a, a Dash 8 400 gear collapse. Again, on a Sunday in the afternoon, I get a call from our head office media folks with a concerned person, interestingly enough, from Timmins, that said he figured out probably why this uh, Dash 8 gear collapsed. It was preceded by a tire burst on takeoff out of Calgary. And he said, uh, it's the number three tire, isn't it? And he was right. And he says, I've been a pastor. I go to Toronto all the time. And it's those tight turns they are always doing out of the gate because they don't do pushbacks with the classic dash in particular. Uh, the 400s, it was maybe half and half, but a lot were still powering away from the gate. And again, they typically power up to the right. And so as they turn, the number three tire is the center of rotation. And... I don't know what his background was, but he always sat beside the right side and he always looked at that tire and he said, that is not good. What that tire is going through 
is not normal. So anyway, I get this on a Sunday afternoon, this guy in Timmins squawking at me about his number three tire and, ooh, that's bad. And I brought it up to Jazz and I brought it up to the airport, you know, people and nobody listens to me. And so I said, thank you very much. That's good. We'll take that down. What's your name? What's your address? And uh, I'll get back to you. And so I started looking into it and it was interesting. I just, I, I sent it to the operator that had the occurrence. I said, look into your maintenance database and you tell me the number of, for your tire failures, which one. And they looked and I said, yeah, 65% of them are the number three tire. Wow. And from that, now it wasn't, it wasn't germane to the report. Like that wasn't why the gear collapsed. Mm -hmm. That was a whole other thing that was really interesting. And it was a mechanical design issue. But uh, out of that though, came a change in procedure though for most of the Dash 8400 operators in Canada to, to push back the aircraft and not power away anymore. Because they saw in all their data, all the operators, that this number three tire fails more than the other four or the other ones. So again, it was kind of a nice example of, yeah, it's, it's funny. And I got to go back to the guy many months later, right? I said, hey, and I sent him a copy of the, <laughs> the report when it was done. I said, hey, look, there's your uh, number three tire discussion actually made it in the report. I would brag forever if anything that I suggested <laughs> to the TSV was relevant and helpful. I would just be, yeah. that, that would be framed. Yeah. No, we, we've got those reports too from passengers and aircraft like that. Most of them are, oh my God, we almost hit somebody in cruise. I said, no, it's RVSM. There's only a thousand feet separation. It looks really close. I know. And you check the radar data every time though. And one time we got one of those from a well-seasoned business passenger for an aircraft uh, arriving in Victoria. And he says, I don't know what happened on that approach, but man, it was max power. And I've never experienced a deck angle like that before. And this was months after the occurrence, but I was able to get the radar data and we looked at it and it was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. They descended below uh, minimum safe altitude on the approach. And it was terrain warnings went off. And the operator that got involved, we went back to them and they said, actually, yeah, we did get an SMS report on that. They went and checked a bunch of stuff, re-interviewed the flight crew, and it resulted in uh, changes in their SIM training profiles, their ground school, and I forget what, SOPs. Just from a guy's call from as a passenger. At the safety board, we are at the mercy of people reporting. Like we don't have some kind of magic detector that goes on, aha, there's an occurrence, right? No. That's why in our, in our um, regulations, it says if anybody's aware of any kind of an occurrence, you have to report to the TSB, whether mm -hmm. it's a pilot, air traffic controller, uh, an owner, operator, or anyone. Like if you see something goofy going on, actually, technically, you're supposed to report to the TSB because mm -hmm. that's the only way we know if something's happened and whether we should investigate or not. It doesn't take an expert. It just takes anyone, not in mm -hmm. aviation. It takes anyone to sort of say, there's something there or maybe there isn't, but it's worthwhile that I at least flag it. Yeah, well, for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. And as we progress in aviation, I mean, accident rates are reducing. Like the, the number of accidents compared to even when I was first hired have gone down. Like we're not working as much and there's a lot of good things happening.
Um, but again, um, for us to do our work, what, what, where we find ourselves going actually is we're investigating more and more the near disasters versus the actual ones. So for example, the ultimate example recently was Air Canada in San Francisco. So there you have a set of circumstances that led up to an aircraft lining up on a taxiway and thankfully went around without colliding with anyone. But the had they collided, obviously there'd be an investigation, right? 20 years ago, there wasn't a lot of motivation for us and even any other agencies around the world to do anything unless there is bent metal and seriously or fatally injured people. But because the system is getting quite good, for us to start to keep learning about um, underlying issues and conditions in the system, we're starting to investigate more near hits than we are actual accidents. And that's where it is critical, just like any SMS, the more re you report, the more aware you become of latent issues within your organization. And again, that's why we have FOQA programs at airlines or flight data monitor monitoring, uh, flight operations, quality assurance. You take all that FDR data and you smush it through a big machine and you start to see little you know, events starting to crop up, flap exceedance, you know, bank angle exceedances. These are all precursors potentially to something like an undesirable aircraft state or worse, right? Where it's unrecoverable and now you get bent metal. So the idea behind uh, any safety system is to try to catch those indicators early on. And as a safety agency, that's kind of where we're doing more work now than ever are the near disasters, but we can only get there if we're made aware of them. Mm -hmm. And that's been an advantage of uh, safety management systems at airlines in particular, is that program communicates to us a lot. And mm -hmm. so they'll say, holy cow, John, you wouldn't believe it. They got down to this altitude, this thing, and went around. But when we looked at it, we saw a whole bunch of other issues. Are you interested, right? So, so that's where, uh, yeah, it's, it's good to be notified. You know, traditionally, yeah, need a smoking hole to head out to work. No, not anymore. So, uh, so it's, um, and it makes the investigative work actually a little less, you know, uh, stressful too, if you're not dealing with a whole bunch of dead people and, and a mangled piece of aircraft wreckage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now to completely sort of change the direction here, what is the most rewarding aspect of being an investigator? <laughs> <laughs> now I'm not going to change it for you. For me personally, <laughs> I mean, yes, there's, this is kind of a, a happy, sad answer or maybe disappointing. What I do, and this is a bit of John Lee opinion, um, what we do as how I see our role in aviation, and I talked about it before, is we create an argument for change. We investigate an accident, a tragedy, we understand it. Hopefully we understand the whys it happened and we create an argument not only a report on what and why, but also maybe an argument for change in terms of a recommendation. But that's our part in the, in the whole safety system that is aviation safety. We are not responsible for the fix. We don't go out there saying, no, it's gotta be three eighths of an inch and made out of this material. 
We don't say that. We just say the design is such that this failure happened. So now it's up to the regulator, the manufacturer, in some cases, the operator, to decide how they're going to modify their business activities to address the safety issues that we've identified. So what, what can be, what some people would, I think maybe what you're saying is, oh, as an investigator, you make things safer. Hooray. Well, to a lot of degree, we don't see those changes. Sometimes not even in a career. Yes, we've, we, uh, kind of a good example is terrain avoidance warning systems or enhanced ground proximity warning systems. The very first uh, recommendation from the board came out, I think in 1996, about enhanced ground proximity warning systems. And that languished as a recommendation for large aircraft to have that as mandatory until first air happened in Resolute approximately 17 years later. So you could go your whole career as an investigator, having identified an issue about large aircraft, having this equipment, the US made it mandatory. Uh, Transport Canada just, for whatever reason, hadn't during all those years. Um, and then, you know, we had a tragedy up in Resolute and then eventually that became an actual regulation in Canada. Uh, the details there I might be a little off on, but but what what, can be frustrating about the job is that you work away, identify issues, but changes don't happen because we're not, we don't make the change happen. We just identify the issue. So there's a bit of, there can be frustration or lack of reward in the work because you don't see the net result. Sometimes it does happen though. And then you get very excited because, wow, we actually, we moved the chains. We actually made, you know, the system safer. Uh, that's one aspect of positive reward. I mentioned public speaking and uh, talking about what we do, what we're doing today is great. Uh, I like that aspect of the job a lot. I do a lot of training at the TSV. I still have that instructor thing in me. So I like to get out there and teach people. Being a manager too in the office, uh, you train the new guys, mentor new investigators. That's, that's a lot of rewarding experience. Um, the last one, which kind of catches people off guard, but for me personally, it's actually helping next to kin. So when you go into that situation where, as I mentioned earlier, you have to go interview and exchange information with a family that's just lost a loved one, it can be really emotionally stressful. Like, I mean, just imagine it, right? You're going into a house um, where the pilot used to live and the spouse is there, you see all their personal effects. There may be their kids are running around in the yard, their toys are in the way and their spouse is there. Um, if you've timed it correctly, you may catch them still in a phase of just disbelief and they can communicate rather well. Sometimes they do cry a lot and it takes a while. You may have family members trying to help out, but as challenging a situation as that is, I try to turn it on its head and say, this is an opportunity where I get to help somebody in probably the worst, one of the worst events of their life, because I am going to help them hopefully uh, at the very beginning, start to understand what happened with factual information. And then as we work together through the investigation with the family, maybe help to understand why it happened. 
and the safety board recognizes our role in people's grief and in moving on. So, or you don't ever really move on, but at least managing it and understanding it. And so, yeah, it's, it's a, a rare opportunity, I think, uh, in some jobs you don't ever really get to help people in a very meaningful way. And in this job you do. And um, yeah, it's been, it's been quite rewarding. I've had, you know, lots of nice messages from family, even emails that continue for years after the relationship we developed in a very intense short period of time. And uh, yeah, there's nothing more rewarding than somebody saying, man, you really helped me out through a very difficult time. So, you know, I, I give that answer and it catches some people off guard, even within the TSB, because you expect them to say, oh yeah, we advance transportation safety and things change and it's all better. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it eventually does. It may happen after you retire. That's how slow sometimes things move. But also uh, this other aspect of immediately helping out or helping out people in that, that time of need is, is, can be quite rewarding. So, uh, so I like that aspect of the work too. Um, but getting back to making changes, uh, one in particular story where we actually saw things change really rapidly and it was like, yay. Uh, we had a float plane accident up at Little Doctor Lake in Northwest Territories. Uh, float plane flipped on landing, a Cessna 206. And it was the U206 with the rear double cargo doors. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, we had three people uh, drown and uh, two people lived, the pilot, one passenger. So again, it was another float plane tragedy. And I remembered right when that happened, my first week of work as an investigator, the, you know, the old timers are at the coffee table, 9, 9.30 coffee time. And they're saying, yeah, John, if you ever go out to a, a Cessna 206 accident, just know that the flaps will block the rear doors if it's got the rear double doors. I said, does it do that? And uh, yeah, I looked at it and he says, oh yeah, this has been an issue for years. This is back in 1999. And um, wow. So fast forward to what was that accident? 2018, 2019. Here we are again with this accident. So Another little internal investigator mantra is there's no such thing as a new accident. The circumstances can vary, but the themes are, are quite repetitive. So here we have another overturned float plane egress issue with a Cessna 206, the flaps are down and the rear door is blocked. So I know instantly, okay, well, this, is, this has been an, a long time issue. So here we go again. Is something going to change because of this, right? So let's do our job. Let's do the report. Let's, but let's be thorough about the history of how the regulator and the manufacturer have approached this issue. So we went to you know some pretty good detailed lengths to describe Transport Canada, Cessna, and the FAA's approach to this issue of the rear double cargo doors and the U206. Put the report out. And wouldn't you know it, we put out uh, what we call internally a safety advisory letter first. So it's a very specific letter to Transport Canada and we CC'd Cessna and the FAA about this history of this safety issue of the rear double door and the flaps and the whole. And Transport Can Canada helped us a lot with developing this because we needed all the data historically from there, their mm -hmm. risk assessments, how they approached this issue over the years. 
And we put it all nicely together in a short little letter, two or three pages, sent it off to transport. And yeah, it was, it was impressive what, what happened then next. We did our job. We created an argument for change. We identified very clearly a safety issue and that it has a very long history. Accidents, fatalities, and unfortunately, not a lot of action on it. So it got into transport and yeah, things started to happen. So, and by the time the report came out, um, this issue was uh, well known. Transport Canada produced an airworthiness directive, which then was seen by a few folks in the industry who finally went, some very industrious people went, we can fix this. Well, all we have to do is design the door this way. And so by circumstances, um, we had some very smart people in the industry develop uh, an actual, you know, uh, uh, technical fix for this. We had the regulator get on board right away and address it from an administrative fix in, in terms of the airworthiness directive. And we had just some unbelievable, excellent safety action taken to address the safety issue. This had been brought up before and we never had that level of activity on this. And for whatever reason, the stars aligned, um, maybe getting back to you create your own good luck. If you create a great argument for change and the environment for change is there, boom, it's going to happen and off it went. So that was, um, I wish I would, <clears throat> I wish I could say it happens more often, but it doesn't. But in this case, it did. And that was really nice to see that uh, the safety board's processes and how we go about producing reports and, um, and how we investigate did create a product that motivated people and got people interested. And those people, yeah, took it and ran with it. And uh, yeah, we got some change. Now I'm waiting for, you don't want to wait for this, but it's going to happen. We're going to have somebody survive because changes that have been made as a result of not just our work, but these other uh, people's work and someone's life is going to get saved. They're going to get out of a door that's blocked really quickly. Hooray. And that's what we, that's all we can ask for. Before I knew much about the 206, I knew that anyone that was sort of seated in the back, if there was a cartwheel or just sort of anything that went catastrophically wrong in a float plane in one of them if they were in the back seat it was pretty much a death a death sentence you you were not going to get out that was yeah. always sort of what I had been taught and I remember not understanding why this had been a long-standing issue and it hadn't changed and I remember thinking this this should change and I remember that accident and I remember seeing the recommendation come out from the report and the following uh, the subsequent uh, airworthiness directive and I remember just being so excited but interested to see that it finally had ha like it finally had changed but it was this idea of well it had to take this many years this much documentation of historically this is a recurring issue yeah. in order to get that change to happen welcome to being in my mind anyway uh, a person living in Canada in a culture that features a democratic political system that's motivated in a capitalist economic system. You know, in a really weird, obtuse way, these are all players in why things can take so long for action to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, 
Yeah. And uh, you can say you're disappointed as well. I'm sure everybody said, why did it take another 20 years of messing around when this issue was known as far back as the 80s and even sooner or earlier, right? I mean, the very first U206 with its rear double door, as soon as the flaps go down beyond 10, right? You got a blocked door. So yeah, it, it has been interesting to see or study that just from, um, you know, how the FAA's certification FAR 23 agreed that that exit was a usable exit when it didn't meet any of the definitions for a usable exit, emergency mm -hmm. exit, right? So it's mm -hmm. like, it's a strange world we live in. Now the TSV puts out a watch list every two years to identify the key safety issues that need to be addressed to make Canada's transportation system even safer. Can you tell me a little bit more about the origin of the watch list and what it feels like to see similar issues regularly identified? I mean, definitely that's a product from our board. And I don't know if you asked the same question to Kathy. So it's, I'm a little uncomfortable talking about it, but from my perspective, um, you know, as an agency, remember I said that we're predominantly reactive, right? I mean, we're called the Accident Investigation and Safety Board. So a lot of our title is, yeah, we respond to accidents. But there's also the idea, like I said, as in our float plane accident, in aviation, just because it is so safe, uh, it's very expensive to redesign and fix. Uh, and there's lots of inertia from manufacturers, regulators uh, to change that, you know, we got to... To encourage change requires a certain amount of sustained pressure. So you can issue a report, you can issue a recommendation, and you have pressure for about that much time for as long as the media wants to talk about it, mm -hmm. for as long as people want to talk about it on the internet, and then it goes away, right? Until the next one happens, right? And then you get another opportunity to bring awareness and focus on the issue, and then it goes away. So the board is strategizing about, well, how else can we keep an awareness elevated to issues that pose a significant risk to Canadians? And it's sustained pressure. Well, it's sustained if we can keep discussing it on a very short cycle relative to, you know, hey, we issued a recommendation in 1996 about enhanced ground proximity warnings. 17 years later, you know, something got changed, right? Or the, the cargo door. But in this case, by having a watch list, you can keep fresh in everybody's minds, whether it's the regulator, the manufacturers, the public in general, about safety issues that have not been fixed or not addressed. And they're safety issues that represent a significant risk. So yeah, every couple of years, uh, the board will um, uh, canvas the individual modes because it's a multimodal watch list, right? So. Uh, and just say, hey, in, in your experiences as investigators, looking at the data, having our macro analysis, people look at all the incidents, occurrences, where are we seeing and it, you know, issues that um, are still haven't been fully addressed or the risks reduced as low as possible uh, that we should promote and keep people aware. So the NTSB does a similar thing. They're top 10 most wanted list. It's a similar technique where you use the, uh, the media and public awareness, internet, what have you, Twitter, all that sort of stuff 
to keep a safety issue in the minds of the people who can make the changes. And again, whether that's operators, manufacturers, regulators predominantly, that, hey, no, look, we're still have an issue with runway incursions as, as one for an example, mm -hmm. right? So, um, so yeah, no, I think the, it's, uh, it keeps, uh, I think it, it keeps certain safety issues elevated and in, in the forefront of people's minds. And more so, I think, exploiting uh, devices that we have out there, uh, the, the media, uh, to, to keep those change agents aware of what we think are important items. Now, has there been an incident or accident that you've responded to that changed the way you thought about aviation and investigations aside from the 206? I would say, just say overall, I kind of mentioned there's no such thing as a new accident, right? So what happens to investigators when you do this job long enough is you start to kind of teeter-totter back and forth internally about, you've got uh, safety theory, James Reason is a popular guy, Swiss cheese model that a lot of agencies like ours uh, leans on in terms of accident uh, causation theory and fits into our methodology of trying to understand what, why an accident happened and what were the underlying conditions. So that model states that, you know, it's the premise that you can't change the human condition, but you can change the condition that humans work in. So it's recognizing that human beings are, are basically faulty to begin with. And uh, if you subscribe to evolution, <laughs> we've evolved as a species because we're risk takers. I don't think anybody can argue with that. When's the last time you ran a yellow light? You know, it's like, when have you seen that the risk was worth the reward? It happens often, usually when you're younger. Ask any male under 25 who buys car insurance. You know, that's the net result of our species being risk takers, maybe more so in our predominantly Northern European culture in North America, how, you know, our society developed over the last 300 years. But uh, that's a lot to say that, um, you know, we are risk takers and, you know, that's kind of the end result typically is we find ourselves investigating a lot of similar accidents and to try to change the focus away from the individual to the environment or the um, conditions in which they're working uh, at the company, yes, you can perhaps affect change that'll help the next bunch of pilots that fill the, the spots or come in, right? Like you can, if you change the underlying conditions or the environment or the culture of a company or the set of circumstances, um, you can do a lot, you can be more effective in preventing reoccurrence than like we said earlier, well, yeah, just fire the pilot or if he died, well, problem solved, right? So I would say that, you know, in terms of investigating accidents, you kind of swing a little bit from left to right on that idea of, and some occurrences you go to where the company has done absolutely everything that a modern company that's concerned about safety can do and they still have an accident. So how can you say it is, you know, the latent issues within the organizational factors of the company when really 
when you looked at it in the cold light of day, it was a choice made by the pilot. And then as a result, the accident happened. Mm -hmm. So you kind of, the pendulum for me internally sometimes goes back and forth between, well, if these people would just pay attention more <laughs> or whatever, right? And that's more, I mean, obviously we don't investigate that way, but I'm just being honest about internally when you look at these and, and conduct these investigations, a lot of the time you are kind of exasperated about the human condition and choices that people make that fly in the face of this data set of previous accidents and knowledge base that's been created from accident investigation and the evolution of safety in aviation. And then at the end, we're still having somebody flying into a hill, CFIT, you know, flying VFR into IMC spiral dive, making decisions that don't make sense, running out of gas. You know, it's just like, have we not learned anything, people? So then how, how is it that I can then logically keep going after organizational factors or the regulator when is it really maybe just an issue with an individual? Mm. Why do you think we have as many regulations as we do? Because we've been doing accident investigation. Have you seen that fun little sheet from 1904, the first air regulations that were built? You know, don't wear your spurs in the aircraft. There's nine of them, right? And now you've mm -hmm. got, man, if you had the to cars. Print, the, print the cars and stack it up, it's like six feet tall or something. And predominantly, and it's always been a secret passion of mine, for every car, I want to find the investigation that resulted in the creation of that regulation and just have a mm -hmm. hyperlink to it. Well, I mean, the cars are, the saying is that the cars are written in blood. Like that is, yeah. it is. No, that's, a, that's what it is. So yeah. at what point um, do you shift the focus in causation models and theory away from the, um, the organization, like reasons model, to be more person-centric? Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, it's, uh, it's fun. It's fun cocktail discussion for sure. But I fundamentally, uh, the reason model still is the biggest net to catch most of the problems without a doubt. And it served the TSB well for, for 30 odd years. So, I mean, that's, that's not going to change. But when you ask in terms of um, that changed the way I think about accident investigation, that's what, that's, that's kind of what motivates me internally is, you see the context of all our work uh, done with our methodology and looking at the underlying conditions and the environment the pilot was working in. But then in some circumstances seeing that, no, this was all very good. And we have an individual here that's made some choices. So mm -hmm. am I doing the whole system service by still focusing on a system that actually by definition was working well, but we still had this happen. It's mm -hmm. being mature enough maybe to say that, yeah, the system, we evaluated it, it's awesome, but this individual made some choices. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a, a fun little uh, back and forth I have these days. Just as the longer you do it, um, something I didn't mention earlier about uh, 
hiring people from industry is, of course, the term biases, bringing your biases from industry as an investigator. The training that we do and the processes we have within our methodology and how we produce reports and conduct investigations is designed to eliminate uh, personal bias as an investigator. And almost anybody's bias within the TSB. That's why mm -hmm. there's so many steps of review and so many people that get involved because all those things are designed to remove bias. Mm -hmm. Because if you're human, you have bias. And now me being an investigator for as long as I am, I now have a certain bias as an investigator. And I'm starting to see that creep in because once you've seen so much, there's a tendency to want to kind of jump over steps in order because you've seen it before but that's not necessarily that's definitely not the best way to do business it's not mm -hmm. happened but i i find myself catching myself from wanting to sprint ahead in the in the you know in where this investigation is going based on my experience or my bias right mm -hmm. but it's fun it's fun to watch that in me and wrestle with it it's fun to see other people do it <laughs> and then you call them on it, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the fun part of the job. <laughs> yeah. Because I know in terms of your own internal bias, we've had different guests speak about when they're putting together a team or if they're in a hiring role, yeah. you have an internal bias to want to hire people that remind you of you, whether they have a similar oh, training totally. background or yeah. went to the same company. But the most effective teams are, we don't want... In my case, like I don't want five Lauras. I need right. totally. Laura, yeah. I need myself, and then yeah. four other people that think differently than I do, have different experiences, because that is the way that we more. It, just in terms of diversifying the opinions and backgrounds, it also helps avoiding having the same conclusions or jumping to yeah. um, the, sort of your own biases. Oh, this must have happened. Oh, that person trained here. Well, yeah. we can make that decision or we can make that uh, extrapolation. Um, but it is important to have. A diverse group of people looking at these accidents yep because that is how you find things that i would miss on my own if it was just yep. a team of lauras because you'll just make an assumption right mm -hmm. yeah. yeah no and that's and the tsb has seen that yeah i mean that's drives our processes is to beat the bias out of the out of the process or the people doing the the job so mm -hmm. lots of teamwork lots of review and bringing in people um, that aren't subject matter experts just to have a look at it. Now in 2020, you received the TSB's Chair Award for your exceptional and distinguished career at the TSB and the aviation industry. What did it mean to you personally to receive this recognition? Well, obviously very grateful, right? I mean, anytime you're recognized for your work, that's awesome, right? But just as we just said, any work that you do at the TSB is, is so not individual. It's, it's a little embarrassing because you're being recognized because you were supported by a fantastic group of people over the years. So it's kind of, it's kind of weird, you know, it's humble. It's, you know, it's the typical Canadian, I'm sorry for accepting this award, but because you are a product of the TSB, it's processes, it's people. And um, yeah, to be singly recognized is a bit awkward. I found, but uh, nice nonetheless, for sure. But by no means is it, uh, you know, you're lucky I'm here, TSB. No, <laughs> I'm a product of the TSB. Now, who is someone in aviation you admire and why? 
That's a hard one. Because in what I do, a lot of the time, we're conducting investigations when you know people weren't performing their best. <laughs> so it's, uh, but you know, in my flying part of my career, um, I'll, I've got one example, and then I've got one from my investigative part of my career. And both you could interview, you should get on podcasts because they're both fascinating people with great stories. So the first one, and this is another great tip for people in the industry, is the industry is so tiny. The person who is your subordinate will be your next supervisor or person that will get you your job, your next job. So when I was flight instructing, I was getting quite long on the tooth as a flight instructor, time to itching to move on. And we had a new flight instructor show up, a new class four, Sue, and uh, very enthusiastic. I think nine, just out of the Mount Royal program. So all of 19 or 20, uh, grew up on a farm in Manitoba and she got the aviation bug bad and that's that's what we're going to do so she shows up and she was dispatching as well a bit i think as well as you know uh instructing starting out and of course being a senior instructor along with some of the other senior instructors uh she was great to work you know one of the only i think we only at the time had three female instructors at the club and about 15 14 males so and age range from 19 to 50. So there's quite a, quite a range, some father figures in there and whatnot, but a lot of bias, you know, it's uh, to be a woman in that industry, even, you know, uh, that was what, 30 odd years ago, not good. A lot of pressure, a lot of, you can see her struggling in terms of trying to fit in, which was just sad, right? Cause it's just a bunch of guys, right? <laughs> Pilot guys are the worst. Uh, in terms of their um, the bravado and all that stuff that goes with it, but her love of aviation and desire was you know unbelievable, and it it motivated me because of the the crap she's putting up with, right? The it wasn't overly I wouldn't call it bullying or or that bad, but it was still you know you know they were. It, it can be a lot. Yeah. And I don't know if you experience if it's, I wish you could talk to her to compare how it is now, you know, versus what it was for her back then. So anyway, got to know, uh, got to know Sue and her, and her husband really well and make great friends. And then boom, off I go to Ontario. And then it wasn't too long after that, that she, uh, her husband got a job. He had to move to Ottawa. Then she followed along and then got work as a dispatcher at Nighthawk. And I think I can't remember all the details if she was also instructing for a local club or not. I think she was and uh, building her time up and eventually, uh, so she was now at Nighthawk in Ottawa. I'm in Timmins and uh, she's dispatching and she got me introduced to the chief pilot at Nighthawk. So she helped me get that job there. And not, it wasn't long after that I got the job there that she got right seat in the beach 99. And then she went captain in the 99. And just after I went captain in the Falcon, she got right seat in the Falcon. We got to fly together. That was fun. It was like two trips. That was it. And then I was off to Canadian regional. Then uh, in 98 or 99, now I don't know if this is fact is correct, but to be awfully close, I think she was the first 
female to be hired by Cathay Pacific, Canadian woman. So yeah, she, it was quite a story, her interview story. It's like, it just makes your eyeballs like, are you kidding me? They asked you those questions. She got the job, you know, and off uh, her and her husband went to Hong Kong. Uh, they did have a temporary, they did get to fly out of Vancouver for a little bit when Cathay had a base there. And we connected a few times when she was in Canada a bit, but um, yeah, so she toughed it out in, uh, in Asia as a female pilot and eventually was captain on the 777. She was almost the first mom captain at Cathay. She missed it by two months. One of her friends uh, got captain first and she had kids. So Sue raised a family of three in Hong Kong been a captain now on the triple sevens for 16 years I think and she's just about ready to to wrap things up once her kids are all graduated she's going to retire and they're moving back to Manitoba but um, fantastic uh, resilience um, tenacious um, talk about a stalwart <laughs> like the craft that the staff it's just it's sad, but it's also a great feel-good story for how she uh, persevered in that kind of environment. It was just mm. unbelievable. Yeah. And to come out the other end somewhat sane. Because, <laughs> I mean, the whole Cathay Pacific story in Hong Kong is, is just a, a story unto itself, right, as, as they've bumped along over the years. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, she'd be a... She's, yeah, she's one that I often think of, you know, if you ever feel down about where you're at or challenges with individuals and whatnot, yeah, it pales in comparison to what Sue put up with or mm. still puts up with probably to this day. Yeah. Mm. And then once I got into accident investigation, there was uh, a safety, uh, safety person, I'll call him at a, at a large Canadian airline that, um, that I worked with that was just fantastic. Um, you're always intimidated as an investigator when you do your first one with, you know, one of the big airlines, right? Because they're a big airline. They're a major, they're the big carrier, right? And you're dealing with big airplanes and smart, smart, smart people. And you go in there and you're going to investigate them. But uh, uh, as with our investigations, when we work with companies, uh, a person from the company we requested gets assigned to us as kind of a conduit for information. So uh, we call it officially an observer status, but essentially they're going to be the conduit of data that we need to get from the company during our investigation. So uh, this fellow, Rob, he, uh, I got to know him through a few investigations. Also, we would invite him out to our uh, air branch workshops to do talks, you know, about, what they do at his company for investigations and how they deal with safety and, you know, from an operator's perspective, his background is fantastic. It's crazy. He's, you know, flew aircraft in the Antarctic. He was a guide, a guide down there, pole to pole stuff, bush planes, you name it. Uh, race car driver, instructor, you know, all sorts of stuff. He's quite the, quite the individual, but, you know, in terms of support, um, and respect for each of our positions, him representing the company, him respecting me as the independent accident investigator from the TSB. Um, we did develop a friendship, but we could switch into professional mode in the blink of an eye, you know? Um, yeah, 
it's just uh you know his his life story has provided much you know motivation for me and um yeah no just a great guy learned a lot about uh big airplane stuff and big operators and big you know bureaucracies of these large companies and he made it very approachable and very easy so um and he just retired which was sad because it was always uh you know you know when you make those contacts in the industry it's always a lot easier getting in and and starting an investigation or just queries or even just as a subject matter expert right uh, having these guys to go to is fantastic but rob was uh certainly made made the job enjoyable and and easy that's for sure now what advice would you have for someone considering a career in aviation make sure that you're an aviator not a pilot <laughs> this is very this is specific to pilots i guess if we widen it out to any job in aviation uh make sure you have it's a passion because if you're just going for it to be, oh, I think being a pilot would be cool. It's going to wear you out and spit you out in a heartbeat because it's too hard. It's, I, you know, going back to why I kind of one of the reasons that helped me leave a full-time pilot job is the unpredictability of it. You know, so you have to have a passion for it that will override the negatives that will come along, whether it's pay reductions, loss of job, always moving. Uh, not seeing your family a lot, um, making having relationships difficult, all those things that everybody knows about in aviation, specifically more so pilots, but uh, AMEs, same thing. I mean, they're traditionally on the night shift all the time. Or if they're in helicopters, they're camping 100% because they go with the machine and they're out in the bush, you know, 10 months out of the year. Um, all these pressures that are quite unique to aviation. I think can only ever be overcome if you have a truly geeked out sense and passion for it. If you just think it's cool, <laughs> you know, hey, I think I, I get a big watch in a fat wallet with that. Well, not really anymore, right? It's, yeah, it's hard. And if you don't have that, um, if you're not dreaming, thinking, inquiring, staring, always looking up at the sky. If you're not doing all those weird things and geeking out on it hardcore, it's going to be hard. There's been a few people. I've got a few friends that snuck by. They did it because they liked, it's a cocktail career. What do you do? I'm an airline pilot. You know, oh, well, you know, and that's impressive. And people are driven by that. A lot of people are. And they managed to skate through. They missed all the layoffs. They missed all the downsizes. They missed, they just happened to, the timing was impeccable. And now they're captains at airlines and they never saw a bump in the road. Mm -hmm. And they got into it because of, they didn't want to do anything else because it was too hard. I don't want to get a degree. You know, I just, mom and dad pay a little money. I pay some money and I'm flying planes. That's cool. You ask them, what's the difference between a Cessna 421A and a 421B, and they couldn't tell you. But geeks can, you know. <laughs> yeah, they, they couldn't really care less about, you know, all the nuances between all the different aircraft types and, and, the, and, and the design about them and all the rest of it. Yeah, it's... Uh, so, yeah, you come across those people for sure in aviation. The, mm -hmm. the pilots, I call them, and then there's the aviators. 
Yeah. Hmm. I know just in my own experience getting into aviation, I was sat down by someone who I fortunately still know and very much admire and respect. And they said to me, why do you want to do this? Just before we get going today, why are you interested in becoming a pilot? And I gave my answer and they're like, okay, well now I'm willing to have a serious conversation with you because your answer was not because I think it's cool (laughs) because I want to have money. I think it's like, I really like the travel aspect. I get to travel for free. It wasn't Uh, kind of the glamor of what we used to think of with aviation. It was very much like, no, this is what I want to do. And I, when I talk to people now about wanting to get into aviation, I ask them the same question. And if I can sort of see that there is a genuine spark and passion there, then I'm more willing to have that discussion with them as opposed to someone that just thinks it's kind of neat. Yeah, same with people that come to see us because we do get people from Transport Canada wanting to come over to the safety board because it is federal government, their pensions are transferable, Mm -hmm. et cetera. So we do get a lot that only want to come because they don't like where they're at. Mm. And that's, again, the very first question, like, yeah, so why do you want to come here? Because I don't think you're ready for it, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. versus the person that uh, one of our last two last hires we had both actually was interesting. They both had bothered me for jobs for 13 years before they got hired Mm. because we don't have a high turnover. It's predominantly just retirement. So, so yeah, you got to wait a long time and, uh, yeah, and, th- and that's a good check. If they're still interested and still trying, then you know that you got somebody that's truly, yeah, going to be able to do the job. Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your aviation career? Yeah, it was actually, it all revolved around a lot of firsts because the first time you do something, it usually sticks out. So obviously the first solo, bing, yeah, that was an obvious one. Uh, The first on my commercial uh, license, my big cross country, I went down to San Francisco. So that was an exciting trip with my brother and a friend. Mm -hmm. Uh, Helped ferry a 421 to England from Edmonton. That was, that stands out, (laughs) still stands out. Um, When I went captain a few times, that's always a memorable day. Um, When I was flying night cargo, this is an interesting one, seeing the comet hale bop in 1997 for the first time the, that was the gorgeous thing about night cargo is it's quiet it's smooth and if you're into astronomy it's fantastic because you're you know you're two-thirds above the atmosphere right at, at the flight levels and viewing uh, astronomical events are just unbelievable so we're hanging in the straps early one morning going into montreal at 33,000 feet and we both looked, what is that? And we both saw it. And that was the, had a double tail, that comment. Fantastic. And then, yeah, for about five months, we saw it all the time. And that we always bring binoculars and monitor it and watch it. And that was cool. Uh, taking my sons flying for the first time in a 172 when they were little. And uh, yeah, that first uh, foreign accident deployment to Taipei. Taiwan, that was, oh my gosh, that was a pressure cooker. <laughs> Exciting though. Mm-hmm. Getting thrown um, to the wolves. Well, yeah. I've only been with the agency for two years and now I'm representing Canada. You're it, dude, don't screw up. So it was exciting that they trusted me not to screw up, which I didn't, thank God. Um, 
but exciting. I mean, this is it, man. You get to, uh, yeah, see the world. Yep. I can imagine it would be, per for me personally, very hard to top seeing hail bop. That would just be so fun. <laughs> We, we did see one meteor shower. I think it was the Leonid one too at altitude. Mm. And we were counting uh, shooting stars, meteorites about one every seven seconds. Wow. It was unbelievable. And the colors when you're mm -hmm. up that, uh, above the atmosphere there is fantastic. Yeah. Night flying was good. It was so brutal physiologically though. And I didn't have kids at the time. I could sleep for seven hours, eight hours in the day. And I was flying with guys that had a family and they would sleep maybe three or four hours. Like when you talk about fatigue and, and uh, micro sleeps and yeah, it was, these guys would, would actually, you know, yeah, I think I'm, uh, I'm dreaming right now. You know, they would be so, yeah, it was, it was crazy to watch. We had an informal um, uh, rest on the, uh, controlled rest on the flight deck SOP before it was a reg and uh but it was required you know so you'd say to the one guy you okay yeah you're okay I'm just going to take the headset off for a bit okay and then you'd look over right as you kind of relax and just kind of rested your eyes a bit and then you'd look over and the other guy would be like <laughs> okay that's enough I'm back it's okay <laughs> oh my goodness and, no, when I, and when I stopped night flying, it was like my IQ went up 30 points instantly. <laughs> it was weird. Yeah. It's a punishing job, but the flying itself is, is flying at night's great, but yeah, yeah. hard the on view, the body. The view from night flying cannot be beat, but it, it, it is brutal. If I, I will only do night cross countries now on a Friday or Saturday night. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I to have to function the next day is tough. Mm -hmm. yeah. generally at this point we ask our guests where they can be found on social media i'm going to assume that you're not so no, we'll... i can't be i personally made that decision 20 years ago because because of media uh we're always scrutinized in the media and if you search john lee now all you get is the tsp, TSP stuff, stuff yeah and i'm because if i had a facebook account or anything uh, i'd be a gong show so i just didn't want to get i use my wife's account <laughs> if i need facebook but I, I don't want to be on any social media. Yeah. I feel like I'm forced to, to do certain things or to be part of certain. I don't want it. Actually, I just, I just left lied. alone. I lied to you. I'm on LinkedIn. Okay. <laughs> we can, can we include your LinkedIn? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm there. Yeah. So, all right. So yeah. we'll include LinkedIn. Uh, otherwise we'll just direct people, I guess, towards the TSV sites. I think that's what we did with Kathy as well. Yeah. I, so you mean if they want to ask me questions or if you want to reach out to you or just know more about the oh, yeah. Well, yeah, throw, just... yeah, I mean, use my email. That's good. Sure. We can do that. Yeah. John Lee, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, you're very welcome, Laura. It was fun. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.